You are Locked On NBA, your daily NBA podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Thursday edition of Locked On NBA, David Locke along with Ben Golliver. Thanks very much for tuning in. Ben Golliver, how are you? I'm doing very well, Locke. Uh, this week has just been all Brooklyn Nets content all the time for me because you had Harden's debut, then you get Kyrie's debut tonight. Crazy double overtime thriller. So many different layers to that game between uh, Brooklyn and the Cleveland Cavaliers. So it's it's been a nice boost to the season. I feel like the season needed the boost, and the Nets have like single-handedly given it to us. Yeah, it's a pretty remarkable story. Um, I assume they're going to be great. I watch uh, when I look at all the numbers on them. Uh, and they played an incredible game tonight. The only problem was they ran into an insane, insane performance from Colin Sexton. Before we break down the Nets and what we're seeing, let's find out from the Lockdown Podcast Network local experts, Lockdown Nets and Lockdown Cavs, what they saw tonight. Adam with the Locked On Nets podcast. That's not entirely how you draw up the return for Kyrie Irving, a 147-135 double overtime loss at the hands of the Cleveland Cavaliers. But Kyrie looked good, looked right back in form after missing seven games. KD can get his whenever he wants, and James Harden looks really happy in his new role in Brooklyn. We're not going to overreact to this. The defensive piece obviously is still there and even more evident when you watch Jared Allen doing a little bit of work. Ultimately, we tip our cap to Sexton for taking it to us there in the second overtime. This is a process. We will get there. No need to overreact. For all things Brooklyn Nets, check out the Locked On Nets podcast right here on the Locked On Podcast Network. Cleveland Cavaliers, after a few days off, just had their signature win of the NBA season with a 147-135 double overtime win against the Brooklyn Nets. This was the first game of the KD, Kyrie, James Harden trio on the court together, and the Cavs spoiled it, and leading the way was Colin Sexton. Career-high 42 points, had 20 straight at one point, heading into late in the second overtime, and the Cavs battled literally at every point in this game. It improves them to 6-7 and seven on the season. Not exactly world-beating, but this is a signature win and a signature performance by Colin Sexton in particular. He has never looked better in how he played in this game. 5 of 11 from, from 3 in this one. 6 of 29 from the field to go along with 5 assists and 2 steals against just 1 turnover. This is without Kevin Love, without Darius Garland with new pieces playing on the on, for the Cavs for the first time. And Colin Sexton played the absolute game of his life and, frankly, might have been the best player on the, on the court for a large stretch of the one. It definitely was the guy, not KD, not Kyrie, not Harden, dominating this game into the second overtime and when it was decided. Colin Sexton was the one deciding this game. I'm Chris Manning, host of Lockdown Cavs. For more on this game and everything Cleveland Cavaliers, check out Locked on Cavs wherever you get your podcasts. You came to the ball to dance with uh, Harden, Irving, and Durant, and you left dancing with Colin Sexton, Ben. It was a ridiculous performance from him. A lot of big-time three-pointers, tough shots, you know, step-backs with people in his face and all that stuff. Um, he was just red hot. I've always been kind of a Colin Sexton skeptic, and that was sort of the player I think that the Cavaliers were hoping for when they drafted him, you know, a, a very – talented all-around offensive guard it wasn't just the the scoring I mean he was keeping everybody involved too I think they had like seven or eight guys in double figures I do think that says something about Brooklyn's defense as well by the way I mean it was uh, going very easily for both teams in this one I mean final score 147 135 but here's one of my takeaways from Colin Sexton's performance like Kyrie Irving had a pretty big hand in that thing I mean he was getting absolutely roasted by Colin Sexton he didn't really have 
enough physicality defensively to keep up with him. He was getting uh, lost off the dribble when Colin Sexton's kind of shaking and baking, getting to his spots. And there's been so much focus on DeAndre Jordan, Brooklyn's bigs, being kind of the weak link for them defensively. I actually wonder if Kyrie Irving is Brooklyn's weakest defensive league uh, link. And I think it's kind of questionable here. Why did Steve Nash not go with some of these other guards in the rotation? He played his stars so many minutes. Kevin Durant, 50 minutes in double overtime. Uh, Kyrie Irving, 48 minutes. James Harden, 51 minutes. He didn't even use a guy like Landry Shamit. Barely played, uh, played Brown off the bench. I don't think you can leave Kyrie Irving out there one-on-one when a player is that hot and just get him, let him get roasted. It's going to happen over and over. To me, he's looking like their weakest link. And I, I think if you're saying, how does Brooklyn massage its roster going forward, you definitely want some front court depth. But I think you also want to find another guy you can trust on the ball as a defender in the backcourt. All right, so who's the weakest link? Is it Steve Nash as a rookie head coach, or is it Kyrie Irving? Well, look, the stars are all aligned right now. He's got his three players out there, and I think that Steve Nash has got to do a better job of putting Kyrie Irving in the situations that he does well and steering him away from the situations where he doesn't do well. There was a number of things that bothered me here from Steve Nash in addition to the minutes distribution, right? What we saw even before the James Harden trade, Kyrie Irving wants to do the hero ball stuff way too often late in games, and Kevin Durant is too comfortable kind of standing and watching and and being a bystander in those situations. When the ball moves for Brooklyn, they always get a great shot, whether it's James Harden setting somebody up, whether it's Kyrie Irving uh, passing and moving, whether it's just the ball skipping around the perimeter. So many times, even against, uh, you know, in this loss to Cleveland, they were just getting great shots when they kept the ball moving. But late in the game, Kyrie Irving, pound, 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 wants to get into kind of a head-to-head duel with Colin Sexton, wants to take tough contested twos. He's capable of making those shots. They're good shots, but they're not great shots. He was just settling too much. Steve Nash has got to get them away from that in the crunch time. They've got to get uh, Kevin Durant more involved, and they've got to keep the ball in James Harden's hands. And the other thing that drove me crazy, Locke, at the end of the first overtime, they've got like 1.7 seconds left. He has Kyrie inbound the ball from the sideline rather than James Harden. Of course, they're trying to set up Kevin Durant for a potential game winner. But Kyrie Irving, like, triple clutches. He doesn't make the pass when he's supposed to make it. It comes late to Kevin Durant. He gets kind of a terrible shot off in a tough situation because Kyrie didn't hit him with the, with the pass on time. James Harden would have made a better pass. I could promise you that in that situation. So, again, it's about knowing your personnel. Uh, Harden's a much better passer than Kyrie Irving with the game on the line or the need for a shot in a tough spot like that. I would have had uh, Harden inbounding the ball there rather than Kyrie Irving. So those are my nitpicks, but I absolutely think the pressure is on Steve Nash now. They've got the stars aligned for him. They're going to have to do better than giving up 147 points to the worst offense in the league. Fourth quarter in the two overtimes, Kyrie takes 14 shots. Durant takes seven. Harden, excuse me, Durant takes nine. Harden takes seven. What I thought was interesting to me is Harden's the point guard. And then Harden has to choose every single time whether he's going to let Kyrie have the ball before he crosses half court or after he crosses half court. Because he's got to get Kyrie the ball at some point to keep Kyrie happy and keep him engaged. I thought that's where they looked uncomfortable. Is It was clear that like Harden was going to bring it up, but then every now and then he'd make that first pass before the play even started just to Kyrie almost to say, your turn. Oh, absolutely. Look, they were walking on eggshells around Kyrie tonight, I thought, especially Harden. And you understand why. Look, I mean, he comes into this season thinking he's going to be uh, Kevin Durant's co-star, and now he's kind of bumped down to that, uh, you know, that third fiddle role. He's coming off of two weeks being away from the team where the whole team changes while he's gone. 
And so I understand wanting to accommodate him in that situation. And uh, especially, you know, from, from Harden's standpoint of, you know, maybe deferring a little bit on offense and trying to keep, uh, you know, Kyrie Irving involved. But that's where it comes back to coaching. The ball needs to be in number, number seven's hands down the stretch, not number 11, right? And I think it also needs to be James Harden playmaking and, and creating good shots for them um, in the half court when the game slows down late in those games rather than just Kyrie going one-on-one. Kyrie doesn't generate good enough shots to turn the entire car keys over to him late in those games. He just wants to take the tough two. Sometimes he makes them, sometimes he doesn't. And Brooklyn can simply do better than that with all the weapons that they've got at their disposal. The other marquee game early in the night, Philadelphia beat Boston 117-109. to Where do you rank Joel Embiid, 42 points, 10 rebounds, two assists, a block, and two steals tonight on your MVP chart right now? Uh, he probably deserves to be number one or two, you know, right now at this point, the numbers have been outstanding. They've been winning games. I just, I still don't buy it, you know, and I, I will go down with that ship. I don't think that the Phillies as good as their record. I think that, uh, you know, their offensive, their, his individual offense hasn't necessarily translated to the overall team offensive success. I still think they've played against a fairly weak schedule, all things considered. They caught a break in this one because they got Boston without Jason Tatum as well. So uh, you add it all up, you know, you tip your hat to MB. He certainly came back focused with a great attitude and he's thriving under the new coach. So you give him credit there. Um, so for first quarter MVP, sure. Uh, you know, is he going to finish in the top five by the end of the season? I, I still have my doubts. Is there anything we can say Doc Rivers is doing for Joel Embiid? I think it's largely just a different voice. I think those guys just got sick of Brett Brown. I mean, that's that probably the simplest thing that I would say. Look, they're still having trouble getting positive contributions from a Ben Simmons on a regular basis. They're still kind of an average offense at best by the numbers, right? It's not anything jumping off the page there. I think Embiid is a, an awesome individual scorer, and that's really what a lot of it's uh, come down to. I think he's making better decisions uh, so far this season, so give him credit there. I mean, it's fewer turnovers, and, and that's always good. Uh, but, you know, to me, he's got more space to operate in. Tobias Harris shooting the basketball pretty well it helps him, you know, just do what he does best. Um, and I think that the Horford thing was just broken last year. So that, you know, is really addition by subtraction from Embiid's standpoint, not only from just him being comfortable, but also from his stats and his numbers and, and how much, you know, minutes he's going to play with certain lineups. It just plays to his benefit to not have Horford there. That thing just never worked between the two of them. Um, so I, I think you add all of those things up and, and that explains Embiid's early success. Well, that's definitely a Philadelphia 76ers perspective after their 117-109 win. Let's hear from John Corrales and get the perspective of what took place from the loss, from the Boston Celtics standpoint. I'm John Corrales of Locked On Celtics after the Boston Celtics lost to the Philadelphia 76ers in the first game of their miniseries Wednesday and Friday the big takeaway for me from the Boston Celtics perspective is that Kemba Walker looked great. And not only did he look great, he looked great playing with Daniel Tice. They had a nice little two-man game working. And considering that Tice has been struggling this season, it gives Brad Stevens a little something different to work with when he considers his lineups moving forward. Kemba looked great. Tice had a career game. It's not going to always work that way, but Brad Stevens even staggered Kemba Walker's minutes restriction to make sure he could get those minutes in the closing lineup and to pair him up with Tice. For more on the Boston Celtics, make sure you're checking me out on the Lockdown Celtics podcast. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. All right, coming up, we'll look at the 
Miami-Toronto game, two teams have really struggled this year. A crazy finish between Orlando and Minnesota and West Coast games were mostly blowouts. We'll check on all those. Ben Golliver, Washington Post national columnist along with us. I'm David Locke. Make sure you catch the new show on the Locked On Podcast Network called Locked On Bets. It's hosted by your boy Q. It's got Lee Sterling handicapping. It's been a great success so far. It's been super fun to listen to. It's three or four of the biggest games, NBA, college, pro, all going on for you. Make sure you grab it. He's had huge success in the college game. If you like to gamble and while you're doing it, get your fr- your account at free account at betonline.ag. Use the promo code locked on for a 50% welcome bonus. You can get play these conference championship games this weekend. You can play the NBA games. Just get into the action, get off the sideline, and don't forget, use the promo code Locked On and receive a 50% welcome bonus with your first deposit at Bet Online, your online sports book experts, and visit our good friends and exclusive partner at, at BetOnline underscore AG to get better bonuses and best bonuses in the business. Sign up for a free account. Again, the promo code Locked On. the bonus, a welcome bonus of 50%. David Locke along with Ben Golliver as we continue running through the NBA games as Locked on NBA does for you every night, plus the local experts' points of view. Miami and Toronto played tonight. Two teams both that have kind of, Toronto's been stricken by COVID playing in the wrong place. Miami's been stricken by COVID across their roster. Let's hear what Sean Woodley of Locked on Raptors and David Ramil of Locked on Heat had to say about this matchup that the Heat won 112-102. Hey, it's Sean Woodley here from Locked On Raptors here to break down the 111-102 loss for the Raptors to the Miami Heat on Wednesday night, falling to 5-9 and and ending a three-game winning streak for the Raptors. And the big takeaway from this one is that the Raptors have no clue what to do against a zone defense. This is the third time in four games, twice against Charlotte, once again tonight against Miami, where they've come up against a lot of zone and had no clue how to break it up. Basically, if you play a zone against the Raptors, it's like adding a sixth defender to the floor, and that defender is prime Ben Wallace. They just have no clue. There's no ability to get the ball in their best scorer's hands. Pascal Siakam, he's just kind of standing around waiting for something to happen, and that thing that is happening is a lot of bricks. And so the Raptors need to figure it out. They had a pretty good run. Seven straight games of pretty sound process. They were the number two offense in the league in that time. Won four games, kind of pulled back closer to 500. And tonight that came all crashing down. And they played the Heat again on Friday. So they probably should get to work figuring out that zone because they are sure to see it again because it is a surefire way to hold the Raptors to very, very few points. They scored two points in the first seven minutes of the fourth quarter against Miami. That's why they lost. I'll be talking about the loss and more on tomorrow's episode of Locked on Raptors. So tune in. Hey, this is David Ramil of Locked on Heat. Miami pulled off a 111-104 victory over the Toronto Raptors to kick off a four-game road trip in what was arguably their most complete victory of the season, and they did it all without Jimmy Butler and Avery Bradley, both of whom are following the uh, NBA's health and safety protocols, as well as Tyler Hero, who continues to nurse a neck injury. The difference? Kendrick Nunn, in what was his best game in almost a year, contributing 28 points, 8 rebounds, and 5 assists. With so many injuries and COVID-19 impacting Miami's lineups, they've continued to get contributions from unexpected sources like Gabe Vincent, Chris Silva, Max Struess, and tonight it was Nunn's turn. It's been difficult to maintain any sort of consistency, either offensively or defensively this season, so getting big minutes from Miami's bench will only increase one of Miami's greatest strengths, their depth and versatility. With players getting more minutes, more experience, and more confidence, they'll be even better when and if their roster returns to full strength. For more on the Miami Heat, follow Locked on Heat, your team, every day. So those guys will play again coming up here. Thanks to Dave. Thanks to Sean. Ben, 
Toronto's interesting. Like, how do they judge themselves this year? They're playing all their games in Florida. They have no home games. It's just a mess. But at the same time, they have, like, massive decisions they have to make, namely about Kyle Lowry. Yeah, you know, I always remember the kind of the parting shot from Nick Nurse from the bubble. Uh, he was kind of contemplating this idea. You know, Serge Ibaka's a free agent. Marcus is a free agent. They're probably going to be losing some of these guys. And you know, he was thinking back on their two-year run, you know, the title and then the, the title defense. And he's like, I already missed this team. You know, that was kind of his one-liner, you know, five minutes after they were eliminated by the Boston Celtics. And it did feel like the end of an era. And you throw them down in Tampa Bay, and it just feels like a totally different team, totally different vibe. All the culture stuff that they had built up over the last couple of years, it's really kind of hard to translate here. Um, so to me, I, I do start looking towards the future for them, right? Pascal has played better than he did to start the season, but you still are kind of looking for him to find his star-level baseline. You did lock in Ananobi, and you locked in Van Vliet. So that's your core. I'm at the point where I think if they get to the trade deadline and there's somebody who's interested in Kyle Lowry, and maybe it's the kind of trade where you're trading for him with the intention of re-signing him in the summer, a little bit like what Milwaukee did uh, with a Drew Holiday, um, where you're, you know, you're bringing him in, but you're also planning him to be a long-term piece for you, and, and hopefully he's kind of interested in, in that kind of a situation. I would be ready to sell on Kyle Lowry if I was Toronto and just kind of move forward and, and try to start fresh next season with a little bit of a younger group. Uh, you know, their center rotation has really held them back. If I had more faith in a guy like Aaron Baines to step up and be better than he's been, I could see the argument for hanging on to Lowry and trying to make a little bit of a playoff push. But I think he's basically hopeless. They, they already parted with Alex Len. He was certainly hopeless. So I think at this point, uh, you know, auctioning Kyle Lowry off at the deadline is probably their best bet. Do you think they can get much for him? I mean, something, right? I mean, he's still really good. He could help a, a playoff team. I think that he was one of the most underrated players in the league last year. You look at his impact stats, they were just absolutely off the charts. There's a bunch of teams out there that don't have point guards, but a lot of them are lottery teams. So one of those teams has to kind of talk themselves into him being a little bit of a Chris Paul light, you know, like a diet Chris Paul version. You bring him in, hope that he can boost you up into the playoff picture. He can be a veteran mentor for a young team and try to get you over the hump. You know, there's a few teams out there that could use point guards. I mean, to me, like New York still needs a point guard. Orlando needs a point guard. Uh, I'm not convinced that Chicago's found a, a long-term point guard, even though Kobe White's had some moments this season. I view him more as, uh, you know, at this stage of his career anyways, more of like a, a six-man, you know, electric energy uh, scoring type of player. Um, so there should be somebody interested in, in bringing him in. But, of course, he's going to want to get paid. And he got a pretty nice contract last, uh, last time around, and he's going to probably want something uh, similarly nice you know, coming off a season where you could say he's an all NBA caliber player last year. The interesting one to me, he doesn't really fit. Uh, I don't know what they would trade. Uh, the GM's already had him because the GM's actually had everyone with the amount of trades he's made. And he grew up there is Philadelphia and let Ben Simmons get off the ball a little bit. Yep. Uh, so that's an interesting one uh, to me. All right. The NBA is wacky. Well, I would go, love, go ahead. Sorry, just to add there real quick. I would love a Ben Simmons trade for Philadelphia. You don't even have to, you know, you, like don't even have to bring in Lowry. Just maybe trade him out of one deal, bring Lowry in from the other deal. It's not quite as good as Harden, but it's definitely an upgrade. Yeah, but Ben Simmons and Russell Westbrook together in Washington and trade for Bradley Beal. Never mind. I just had the idea of Russell Westbrook <laughs> and Ben Simmons playing together. I thought it was really funny. All right, so the NBA is wacky. We got these really good games. We've talked about all of them. And then you have the game that's frankly the one we don't think we'll talk about at all. But there's nothing that brought more excitement to anyone than the excitement that the Orlando Magics brought to <laughs> Philip Roshman Reich at the end of this game. Here's our Locked on Magic host after a crazy finish. And then a despondent, despondent Locked on Wolves host. Two words. 
Cole Anthony. My name is Philip Rossenreich. I'm the host of Locked On Magic with your quick recap of the Orlando Magic's improbable, incredible, indescribable win over the Minnesota Timberwolves. Indescribable in many, many ways. But the Orlando Magic trailing by 20 at the beginning, at the end, in the, early in the third quarter, trailing by 10 in the fourth quarter, trailing by five with two minutes to go. Take advantage of Jared Vanderbilt missing two free throws. Nice to be on the other side of those for a change. And saw Cole Anthony drive the length of the floor in four seconds and drain the game-winning three. The legend of Cole Anthony has begun. Or, I don't know, that, that's probably a little bit of hyperbole. The Orlando Magic's clearly not a great shooting team. They uh, win the game 97-96. They scored just 10 points in the second quarter, but none of that seems to matter because the six-game losing streak is over. And things feel a little bit better. Evan Fournier returns, has a fantastic game. Nikola Vucevic is able to get himself going, and Orlando is able to rally once again in the fourth quarter and steal a victory on the road. The Orlando Magic defeat the Minnesota Timberwolves 97-96. to We'll have a complete recap on Locked On Magic tonight. Subscribe now. We'll see you then. What's up, everyone? Ben Beacon with Locked On Wolves. The Minnesota Timberwolves just suffered one of their worst losses in recent memory. And yes, that's saying a lot when it comes to the Timberwolves. The Wolves had a 20-point lead in the third quarter on the Orlando Magic, a 10-point lead with four and a half minutes to play, and ended up losing on a Cole Anthony three-pointer. Lots of questionable decisions by head coach Ryan Saunders in this one once again, especially pertaining to the rotation. Down the stretch, uh, Jared Vanderbilt got a rebound with four and a half seconds left. He's a 47% free throw shooter. The Wolves had two timeouts in their pocket, did not call timeout, instead allowed him to shoot the free throws. He predictably missed them both. Cole Anthony hit a three-pointer to win the game by one for the Magic. Lots of other questions related to the rotation. D'Angelo Russell and Jordan McLaughlin didn't play together the entire game until the final few moments with the Wolves up by just 10 points, and they're on the court together down the stretch, and the, the defense was simply not up to snuff for the Timberwolves. Um, we're going to be talking about that on the post-game pod upcoming shortly. For more on the Minnesota Timberwolves, you can subscribe to Lockdown Wolves daily podcast Monday through Friday. Lockdown Wolves, your team every day. Oh, the tale of two cities. On that one, poor Ben is not okay with the Ryan Saunders and Philip Rossman Reich just brought enough energy to like he brought he brought more hope than Joe Biden today. Oh, I love that man! I don't know if you saw the video of all the guys splashing Cole Anthony with the water in the locker room, but he sounded like he was right there with them. It's, it's so good. I mean, just to put the numbers on it, it was a ninety-eight percent win probability for the Minnesota Timberwolves with like two minutes to go. Um, I mean, you rarely see a team lose into that situation, obviously. And Cole Anthony just kind of single-handedly erasing that lead. It seemed like it was completely in hand for Minnesota. And the worst part about it for Minnesota, they needed a win lock. And Orlando had been reeling ever since the Markel Fultz uh, season-ending injury. I mean, they were kind of ripe for the taking for Minnesota, even though they didn't have uh, Carl Anthony Towns tonight. They really needed that victory. And that's just a... A heartbreaking loss for them. Uh, you rarely see a game uh, flip that quickly. Maybe on the college level or the high school level, but just the late game execution, having a non-free throw shooter on the line, uh, you know, to miss both in the, in the last couple of seconds is just a brutal, brutal, heartbreaking loss for Minnesota. No, it's so bad that on the, on the like, NBA lead tracker, it actually never shows Orlando with a lead ever again. It just has all the, <laughs> like, it, it actually never happens. Like, it's... I mean, poor Minnesota, to some extent, they, I mean, they've been just stricken, right? Like, Carl at the Towns gets hurt. They get a great win over Utah. He gets hurt. Then he gets COVID, so he's out again. But they're really bad again. They are, and I don't feel like they're as bad as their record. But at some point, you know, like, if, if you're right back in that same spot, you know, you're starting to run out of excuses. I mean, 
they're a one-man team to me with Carl Anthony Towns. I've never really been a D'Angelo Russell believer. And, uh, you know, he still has the opportunity to prove people wrong when, the, when he's together on the court with Towns. But so far, I just haven't seen it. And he definitely hasn't stepped up in Towns' absence to kind of carry them in the way you would hope if, if you're paying a guy a max salary and he's a former All-Star. Um, look, I mean, best wishes to Towns. I hope he's healthy. I hope he's able to recover. I hope he's able to get back on the court. Uh, you know, as soon as possible, it's just terrifying and sad news for them. So I, I definitely don't want to kind of, uh, you know, kick dirt on them right now, uh, you know, based on how things have gone, but it, you're struggling to find optimism points. You know, Anthony Edwards had some flashes earlier in the season. Um, I thought maybe Jared Culver would be ready to take a bigger step forward in year two than he has. And, you know, the rest of the guys, I mean, they're just kind of waiting for Carl Anthony Towns to come back. So just a, you know, a heartbreaking loss for the, the Timberwolves at kind of the worst possible time. All right, if that's the feel-sad story of the West, we'll give you the feel-good story of the West. We'll give you the best team in the West. Oh, oh, did I just say that? Oh, that might be true. It might not. Some people will probably disagree. And then we'll probably give you another sad story of the West. That's what we've got before we're done uh, tonight. You're David Locke along with Ben Golliver recapping what was a full night of NBA. Make sure you catch Anthony and Adam tomorrow on the show. And every day you can catch Locked on NBA giving you the recap of what's happened last night in a quick 30-minute show. The other thing you can do is if you are looking for auto parts, you can go to rockauto.com. I always have to do the rockauto.com because once along the line I cracked a joke and Ben laughed and so now I just do rock. Like they are like the official sponsor of the lock and Golliver Thursday show is what I've decided because then I can talk about Ben's great prowess as a do it yourselfer on cars. Oh I'm, yeah. Big car guy. I'm done talking about his prowess. That's, that's the <laughs> prowess right there. All of it. But if Ben wants windshield wipers or you want something that actually fits for your needs, rockauto.com is the place you don't need to go pay the brick and mortar prices you don't need to be restricted by the brick and mortar selection you can go to the unique old school fundamental site rockauto.com and get the remarkably easy to navigate catalog with all the parts your vehicle will ever need at much lower prices in fact if you're looking for a fuel pump the one for the honda odyssey is 354 at a big chain store it's only 216 at rockauto.com those are the kind of savings you get and their prices are always reliably low same for professionals same for do-it-yourselfers so why spend up to nearly twice as much on some parts go to rockauto.com see all the parts available for your car truck and write locked on in the how do you hear about us section that's locked on in the how do you hear about us selection amazing selection reliably low prices and all the parts your car will ever need all right the feel-good story of the West is still probably the Phoenix Suns at this point, don't you think? Um, yes, they've, they've had some stumbles here recently. I mean, a couple of strange losses. They changed their starting lineup, um, and that does seem to have maybe sparked DeAndre uh, Aiden a little bit. He had a nice game tonight. You know, it's been some frustrating uh, performances from him, and I think that ultimately if they are going to become that team where we do say, hey, they made the big leap up, they are the West feel-good story, a lot of it is on his shoulders. Um, and it's just a wide variety between is he locked in? Is he trying to take good shots? Is he working hard for his offense or is he just going to stand up and, and just shoot mid range jumpers and clank them and not be totally engaged. And I think you saw them against a weekend opponent in the Houston Rockets and they were able to take, kind of take advantage of that. And uh, he was right in the middle of it. 26 points, 17 rebounds, three assists, five blocks. That will work. All right. Last week we said like that Luke Walton was like, dead man walking 
Um, then, like, I think the Marvin Bagley, De'Aaron Fox stuff happened then. It's still going on. Marvin Bagley's defensive numbers are so atrociously bad, it's unbelievable. Like, the Marvin Bagley, De'Aaron Fox pick and roll is by far the worst defensive pick and roll in the NBA. And the De'Aaron Fox, Rashawn Holmes, is like top 15 defensively. So that <laughs> there's, there's only one difference between those. The worst isolation defender in the NBA, Marvin Bagley. Like, it's so bad. But is Luke Walton coaching the Sacramento Kings when we do this show next week? So I'm looking at their schedule because here, here's why I wanted to talk about this. Like, I don't know if you've seen their overall defensive numbers uh, recently, but the last I checked, they were dead last in the NBA by such a wide margin. So if I'm going off of ESPN's numbers right now, their defensive rating is 118.9, oh. Oh. which is which is basically the equivalent of the greatest offense of all time if you flipped it around, right? So they are making all of their opponents – turn into the greatest offense of all time. Uh, can, can, I build, else... can I build on this, Ben? Because I just pulled up NBA's numbers. Please, build. Build away. So NBA's numbers have them as a 120.5. <laughs> okay, but let me try to put this in perspective. The next worst in the league, which is Washington, who we've never thought of as much of a defensive prowess, is a 114. That's what I'm saying. It's just a massive gap. So... You can't be that much of an outlier and stay employed for that long. And so here's the thing. In, until tonight, they lost by basically I think almost 20 points tonight to the Clippers. So they didn't really have to kind of, uh, you know, it wasn't that competitive. But prior to tonight, their, their most recent, like, eight games, they gave up 137, 124, 144, 125, 122, 132, 138, 128. Like, that's pretty much impossible you know by by average nba standards if you have guys who are actually bought into what you're doing i mean even the absolute worst defenses i mean guy you know rosters of players who are g leaguers are going to be able to play better than that and sacramento's talent level is uh, above that you know it's not amazing but it's certainly better than you know fringe nba talent so that's why I think Luke Walt needs to be very nervous. Now, here's the thing. This could go either way for him, Locke, because their next five games, New York, Memphis, Memphis, Orlando, Toronto. So that's five winnable games for them, I would say. I mean, Memphis is, is, has a good record, but they're nothing to really write home about. They're scrappy. They play hard, but they're beatable, right? If Sacramento can't make some hay on that five-game uh, five stretch and a bunch of those are road games, and then at that point, I think if you're ownership, you're like, well, look, I mean, if we can't beat the teams that we're supposed to beat or have a shot, and we can't stop anybody, we got to make a move here. So that's sort of how I look at it. I view this as a crisis situation. I'm not sure if everybody else does, but I don't know what else to call it when the numbers are that bad. Well, it's interesting about them is that they're 5-10, and 10, which is bad. They've lost four in a row. It's like getting – it feels like they're 2-20. and 20. Yes. Totally. Like, like, with all the drama they've had, I, I – the other day, this was before they'd lost four in a row, I looked up, they were like 5-6, and six, and I was like, What? How are they five and six? <laughs> I know. I, I, they got they got a couple of soft wins early against Denver when Denver wasn't really like good out of the gate. Um, and maybe I shouldn't, you know, I give give Sacramento credit for taking care of business, right? But at the same time, like I, I, I think if I had to buy stock in like Minnesota or Sacramento, I think I would probably buy stock in Minnesota. And that's saying a lot because we just talked about how heartbreaking their loss was and how we're kind of skeptical of a lot of their main pieces, but. Uh, you know, to me, I, I think he's just kind of dangling right now. I mean, it's he came in as a guy I saw on the hot seat. 
I would have been surprised at all if he was the first coach fired, and I, I kind of still feel that way. Clippers won their fifth in a row. There's 11 and four. They're have a, they're the best tied for the best in the West now. I I I just have loved this team all year long. Um, do you think they're like? Are they on par with the Lakers in your mind? I mean, I, it's really hard to say anyone's better than Lakers. I got it. The Lakers, though, the Lakers have sleptwalked through a few things recently. But are they on par with the Lakers? I would still say the Lakers are better, but I kind of want to throw this one back to you because you were teasing it a little bit earlier, saying you thought that maybe they were the best team in the West, and you know, I, so I, I want you to expand a little bit. I mean, how high are you on the Clippers? I just love them. Um, and honestly, the thing I really love about him is how much minutes Lou Williams minutes are going down every night. Um, that's the only <laughs> yeah. thing I didn't like about him. I thought they had a Lou Williams problem because Lou Williams greatest strength is not necessary for this team. But I, I mean, if you look at their lineup to start the night with Be- Beverly, George, Leonard, Batum and Ibaka, they're Beverly's the only one who's not crazy long. And frankly, you can bring more a senior in. Or Luke Kennard in for Beverly, and now you're six five six. Like if you bring in Morris, Batum's your point guard at six eight. Leonard's six eight. George is six nine. Morris is six nine, and Ibaka's seven feet. You got forty eight minutes of seven footers with Zubak. If you ever need to play Zubak more and play Ibaka at the four, you can. You're comp- Luke. You've got ball movers. Nicholas Batum's the best offseason signing that nobody talked about, and might even be one of the best offseason signings because he's just he's a ball mover. He's not an assist guy. He's a ball mover. Luke Kennard's a ball mover. They didn't move the ball at all last year. I'd be really curious of what their pass numbers are this year compared to last year. I I think this team is fabulous, and they've got you know Paul George is playing at a crazy high level. They've got. Kawhi Leonard, so they probably got two of the top 10 players in the NBA, maybe top 15. Like, I, I think they're fabulous. No, the point on ball movement is, and, and ball moving is huge. I mean, it goes back to kind of what I was saying with Kyrie, where he's settling for good shots, not, not taking the extra step to go from good to great. I mean, the Clippers are taking a lot of great shots this year, moving the basketball around the perimeter to open men. And I don't think it's a coincidence Paul George is shooting the basketball so well. Some of the other guys are shooting the basketball really well from beyond the arc. It's because of exactly that. Uh, my biggest questions, I'm with you, cutting Lou Williams down, especially because he has not been that good this season, is absolutely the right move. I still worry that do they have enough bench scoring production? Morris is a nice piece to have come off the bench. I think it was kind of smart of them to just stick with Nicholas Batum even once Morris came back healthy because it was working so well. Um, but I do worry, okay, if you have Zubak coming off the bench, a lot of teams go smaller with their second units. Is he going to get into matchup issues? Does that limit his effectiveness a little bit? And then just do you have enough of a scoring punch from your second unit? It's been such a signature signature strength for the Clippers uh, for years and years. And this year, it's really been kind of a liability for them. They're, they're very top-heavy. They rely a lot on their starting lineup, which is good because their starting lineup is awesome and it does have the superstar-level talent. I just wonder if, if they're almost a different team with, with different flaws in the group they had last year. I think they're clearly a top-two team in the West especially because teams like Dallas and Denver, who I thought were going to be real challengers, haven't really been that so far. They still could be, uh, but they've got something to prove. So to me, the first tier is the Lakers. The second tier is the Clippers. Third tier is everybody else. Uh, Are the Warriors good? Warriors are good. It depends on the night, though, man. They have some real swings in quality, right? And sometimes it even depends on the half. Um, I think you're, you're, you're going to expect that with some of the players they've got out there. I mean, Ubre has just been really, really tough to watch and inconsistent. Wiggins has found some consistency, which is nice. 
And Draymond has been a stabilizing factor since he came back on the court. Um, Steph is obviously the straw that stirs the drink, and he's had some really impressive performances here, especially over the last two weeks. Um, I'm not ready to kind of go all in on them. I don't totally trust them. They've had good health luck so far and availability luck from their players. Uh, and certainly if you compare them to a team like Portland or a team like Dallas, you know, those are kind of teams that we thought that they would kind of come in and be similar to. Um, they've had by far the best availability. You know, all their guys have been playing and, and avoiding, you know, uh, you know the, the, the coronavirus-related stuff too. So I, I just worry, will that catch up to them at some point? But, you know, I, I guess over the last week or so, uh, we've seen them – maybe hit a level of consistency we were hoping for. And they show a lot of resolve late in games, you know, big comeback against the Clippers and a big comeback against the Lakers where the Lakers just kind of rolled over in that game. So um, there's a lot of reasons to be excited, but I still question, do they have enough shooting around Steph? You know, are the elite defenses going to be able to, you know, throw enough pressure at Steph? Do they have enough guys who can kind of be uh, auxiliary scorers and, and floor balancers to kind of uh, overcome those kind of jump defenses? And we've seen a lot of teams have success with that against them. And I think the same thing would happen in the playoffs too. By the way, one note, uh, as we wrap this up, I just pulled this up. Clippers last year threw 279 passes. This year they throw 300. It's a big Ooh. difference. Actually. So like 8% more? Yeah, 8% is a lot, right? That's actually that's actually a oh, pretty yeah. big jump in the NBA. By the way, Warriors blew out the uh, Spurs today, 121-99. Wiseman had 26-4. and four. All right. We got a few more games we'll touch on with our local experts because we didn't touch on them. Ben and I uh, have wrapped it up. I have it. I have a little tidbit note for you, but you have to wait until after we hear from Dallas and Indiana. Here's Nick from Locked On Mavs and Tony from Locked On Pacers about their game. I'm Nick Angstead from the Locked On Mavericks podcast, and the big story from the Mavericks win over the Pacers was Kristaps Porzingis. He's finally starting to get right, finally starting to look like the player that we knew he could be, the all-star that he can be, that he was in New York, that the Mavericks traded for. The interior defense of the Pacers definitely gave the Mavericks a lot of favors. They definitely helped them out in that area. Miles Turner was out for this game, so Kristaps Porzingis just Beasted, cutting from the corners, running off of pick and rolls. He was just absolutely devastating around the rim. And the Mavericks are able to take advantage of that. Porzingis started at the five. It's one of the first times this year he started at the five. Usually they put another five next to him so he doesn't have to do all the dirty work. But they were able to start him there. He was really effective there. Finished with 27 points, 13 boards, five of them offensive. Also four assists for him, passing out of some of those double teams. Luka. Only 13 shots in this game. Second game in a row that he hasn't taken a bunch of shots, and that's because they were trapping, playing box and one. Luka was making the right play, and the Mavericks came away with the win. We'll have more on the Lockdown Mavericks podcast. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast. I'm Tony East from the Lockdown Pacers podcast, and the big story from the Pacers' loss to the Dallas Mavericks was the importance of Miles Turner, a guy who didn't even play in the game. Miles Turner was out. He has a fracture in his right hand. And the Mavs just dominated the Pacers at the basket. Porzingis got to the rim at will. Doncic was able to carve into the lane and pass out for shooters all the time. The Mavs finally hit some fourth quarter threes to put the game away for that exact reason. And after the game, DeMontis Sabonis and Malcolm Brogdon and Nate Bjorkman, the head coach, all spoke highly of, of Miles Turner, what he brings to the defense, and how much him being out really impacted them in this game against Dallas. So the Pacers uh, – Two straight losses with Turner on the shelf with this hand injury. Really need to get him back because uh, their defense has looked terrible without him, and they need him to be the best version of the team they, they want to be. And before we get back with our final nugget, here's the Rockets' perspective on their loss to the Suns we mentioned a few minutes ago with Jackson Gatlin. 
What's up, Jackson Gatlin here. Rockets losing another close one, unfortunately. Final score 109-103 against the Phoenix Suns. But this is a game where they really showed a lot of fight. Um, and they kind of have in all the games in the post-James Harden era, which is what you want to see out of this group of guys, kind of playing with a chip on their shoulder, uh, you know, going on a 15-2 run to try to get it down to a, a one-possession game at one point against the Suns was an incredible little spurt stretch led by their defense at the tail end of the game. Christian Wood rolled his ankle horrifically just before the first half ended and managed to actually come back out on the court, get some shots up, and then play in the second half on the way to 20 points and 11 rebounds and was a big part of that comeback to almost steal a game from the Phoenix Suns who are at the top uh, of the Western Conference. So for a further breakdown on this game, be sure to subscribe to Locked on Rockets, your team every day. Ben Golliver, I don't want to write your columns for you, but I got a little tidbit to leave you with to make it worth your time. Are you ready? Bring it on. I'm always ready. Five, ready. five teams in the history of the NBA have ever taken 40% of their shots as threes. Seven are currently doing it this season. Wow. Yeah, man. It just The trends just keep going and going and going and going. And uh, who are the teams? Do you have them handy? Yeah. The, so the five teams that ever did it were four Houston teams in Dallas last year. The interesting note on those five teams, this is what their offensive rank was. Seventh, first, second, first, and second. Pretty good offenses right there. This year, for sure, the teams are Toronto. Or the Jazz have taken the most. Toronto, Portland, Oklahoma City, Phoenix, Miami, Houston, Dallas, Milwaukee. You want my next little note on this? It's early in the season, small sample size. We want my next note on this. I'm writing the Please. whole column for you. Washington Post. I'm going to get my first ever Washington Post byline. It's going to say on the very bottom, David Locke contributed to this article. And I, life will be complete. My mother will finally think I'm a success. All right. Of those five teams that have ever done it, nobody's ever shot better than 37% while taking 40% of their shots as threes. Jazz are shooting 41. Toronto's shooting 37. Portland's shooting 38. Phoenix is shooting 38. Miami's shooting 38. And Milwaukee's shooting 40. Not only are they throwing up more threes, they're making them at an alarmingly high rate. And it's amazing because there's a whole bunch of teams that could be shooting a ton and making a ton that weren't even in that top tier group, you know, yep. like Brooklyn, Milwaukee, shouldn't they be kind of messing around trying to get in there too? Uh, they should, they should be. Yes. More teams should be shooting. You know why? Because there's only five teams that have ever done it in their worst offensive ranking ever was seventh. So there should be more teams that do this. <laughs> I know. Well, it's so you basically what you're saying is not only is the three point revolution here, but it's refining itself. You know, like it, it's uh, the the uh, the robots are are getting intelligent. They're developing their own brain. I think. Yeah, I think the three point revolution happened before everybody can make three point shots. What we're going to have next is a three point revolution while everyone's making three point shots. I'm with it. Um, it, it definitely adds, you know, it adds a level of unpredictability, you know, and I think that actually you and I were talking about this with respect to Utah. When it looks great, it looks great. And if there's a night where it doesn't look good, you're just like holding your head in despair. Like, is it ever going to be okay? And then they turn right back around the next night. And it looks great again. You know, so it's, it, uh, it adds an element of roller coaster, uh, you know, aspect to a season, doesn't it? Utah's on a six game stretch that is the most prolific six game stretch of three-point shooting like in NBA history. 
Like Utah's well, Utah's made twenty threes in four of the last six games. That equals the most any team's ever done it. And they've made twenty threes in three of their last four. That equals the most of any team that's ever done that. Well, David Locke reporting live from Park City. I'll make sure I get that in my column for you. All right. Uh, no, just David Locke contributed. That's all I need. Then my mother will think I'm complete. <laughs> She's a subscriber, I'm sure. All right. Well, have a, have a good so. one. Hope she's not the only one, all right? Walked on Washington Post. I think, I, think, I, think the Washington Post I think the Washington Post has subscribers, a lot of subscribers that are good, really want to read every word of the greatness that happened today. So I'm sure that's the case. Ben Golliver, thank you very much. My pleasure, man. Take care and uh, that's what she said.